ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb, and I am really excited to do this one. Um, this gentleman and I have never met face-to-face, and we didn't even really know each other when we were working in the same city at the same time. Um, just kind of realized one day that I wanted to, to reach out to Seth and, um, and just introduce myself, because I thought he was a really interesting mind, um, a unique mind in New Orleans and our sports media landscape. And so now, here we are like two years later, and I'm finally getting the chance to speak with him. So I'm happy to welcome to the show for the first time, Seth Dunlap. Seth, how are you doing today, man? David, what's going on, man? It's good to see you. It's good to see you. I like the, the, the hard in the paint shirt, man. I got to get one of those. Yeah, I got, a nice, got some nice stuff out there. Man. Got some you swag. Know? Got some yeah. swag, dude. Like yeah. This. And uh, so you, you were in New Orleans, you know, first you've been in, in media for about two decades, um, and, and you transitioned uh, from sports. Um, and now you are doing something that is incredibly interesting to me. You're working for Frontline Access, which is uh, covering the Black Lives Matter movement in, in the Pacific Northwest in particular, documenting it visually and sharing information about what's going on in the interactions with police, interactions with uh, local officials, all those things. And we're seeing this just like we saw it play out in Los Angeles yesterday in the press conference with the sheriff's office. There is an ongoing campaign to, to get out clean information about what's happening in these cities, just as much as they're an ongoing campaign to give out disinformation about what's going on in this in these cities. Why was this something that you wanted to get involved with? Well, I think, uh, you know me well enough to know I've been, um, I'm not going to say activists because I wasn't out on the streets. Uh, like you said, I was, I was in sports media for two decades, um, but certainly an advocate. And it's something that I always kind of worked into my, into my sports shows throughout my career. Um, and uh, once that I stepped away from the program in New Orleans, I was a little bit out on the streets a little bit more uh, with this. Uh, I went to Portland in June, um, oddly Portland. It's, uh, I think, what, 4% black right, right. in Portland, <laughs> right? But it, it turned into kind of the epicenter, um, one of them for the Black Lives Matter protests across the country. And um, to give you some kind of background on this, the reason that is, and a lot of people have asked me, why Portland? Why Seattle? Why this? It's the protest culture up here. We mm-hmm. all grew up, I grew up in Seattle. I think everybody who grew up in the Northwest will have relatives that um, kind of talked about protesting, what they did when they were younger, whether it's the Expo, whether it's the World Trade Center. Uh, the, I'm talking about the WTC uh, Seattle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, the Nixon protests. There were so many protests up here in Portland and Seattle, especially. It's kind of known as like the protest capital of the country, if not one of the protest capitals of the world. So you kind of knew the protests would be kind of heavy up here. And the BLM protests and then the counter protests in Portland with the Proud Boys Patriot prayer right wing groups had been really intense for like the last two to three years. So when um, the protests spawned across the country um, in May after George Floyd's death, um, wanted to go over to Portland, see what was happening. And um, the first day I was there, David, I, I saw things with my with my own two eyes that I, I couldn't unsee. 
um, that were were devastating, but at the same time inspiring. If, if that makes if that makes any sense, and I don't know how how much you want to get into it, but basically, I saw the first day that I was in Portland in front of the Justice Center, which is in downtown Portland. You probably had about three to five thousand protesters there. I've actually used my sports crowd knowledge pretty well and kind of uh, you know, everybody asking how many how many people are out there. It's, you know, it's pretty easy, but you go to a lot of states games or uh, whatever to kind of figure that out. Basketball, but, football, <laughs> basketball, yeah, you figure it out. Right. Right. So like three to 5,000 people there, man. The first day I was there, um, the entire crowd got tear gas, rubber bulleted, munitions, batons, brutalized um, in ways that were pretty devastating. Um, And I saw that. And that day I was protesting. Day one, when I went out there, I was not covering. I was protesting. Um, I saw what was happening. Um, I think I turned on my phone midway through that protest and just started live streaming Mm -hmm. and um, everybody was appalled by what they saw. So I just started going back out there again and doing it again and, and kind of became a daily thing. And by the way, there were people, so many really good um, freelance journalists is basically what they are that had been doing that. And the reason that I went out there, so then I wasn't the first, not even close to it, but I just, you know, I felt like I needed to do something and use my skills in some way to make a difference after, um, after what I saw in Portland. And there were there were some things, again, that I just can't unsee there, David. No, you know, it's, it's good to have these kind of exchanges because for you as an observer, it's certainly different than for me who, even if I'm not in that, I feel it in a different way, a visceral way, a common, there's a common thread to it in my life. Um, you know, my mother grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, um, you know, and I tell people all the time that, you know, this was intimate for me because that was a civil rights movie. She was born in 1952. The, the girls that were burned, uh, bombed in the, the church in Birmingham, those were her friends. She knew those girls. Um, so, you know, that was, you know, my father grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, which was no less segregated and, and had its own issues. So that was always a forefront in our discussions in my life. And, um, now that more people are seeing it, yeah, it sucks. Like you said, it sucks to watch the tremendous violence that people have to suffer. Yeah. But at the same time, their dignity in getting back up and coming back out there the next day and putting themselves on the line again. And whether it's the protesters or people like you who are stepping into the middle of this to make sure that the truth is told. Um, it's just, it's an incredible responsibility. It's an incredible act of kindness um, and faith that something will change. And so, you know, every bit that's done to me is just, it's so critical right now because as we'll get into this in a moment, just I, I'm starting to feel like there is a slowing of momentum in having these discussions and being serious about these issues. It seems to be we were going back into the feelings conversation rather than the solutions conversation. And um, I think what you're doing uh, is important to keeping that as a catalyst for people to understand it hasn't stopped. Yeah, and, and the, the the fight against misinformation that you're talking about, David, is um, it's incredibly important. And I think everybody had, you know, we, we've all been 
maybe inoculated to the term fake news a little bit. Um, and we worked in media. You work in media. Right. I worked in media. We've seen inside the beast, right? Uh, we've been part of the beast, right? But I think that that we know and everybody knows a lot of the, the media, especially corporate media, is disingenuous and only paints the picture that they want you to see um, in order to make the most money because that's why they're there is to make the most money. Exactly. Unfortunately, that shouldn't be the role of news organizations, especially, but it has been. But just to give you an example of the things that I saw in Portland um, that weren't being shown until the live streamers, I'm not saying me, I'm talking about everybody else who right. was there before me until they started showing it. Um, day one, when I got there, everybody you know, got gas, like I said, to 3000 people. Day two, you had, have you heard of the wall of moms? Yes. You heard of this thing? Okay, so the wall of moms for everybody who doesn't know. Um, most of the protesters at this point in Portland, like across the country, were relatively young, right? In their late teens, 20s, early 30s, which is kind of protest in general, right? Usually right. those people don't have families, don't have, you know, um, big time home responsibilities, so they're out there. Um, middle and elderly, middle-aged and elderly women saw their kids and their grandkids getting tear gassed, getting brutalized, and they formed a Facebook group in Portland. It's called the Wall of Moms. Uh, it was organized partially by a woman named Demetria Hester, who is a very well-known um, activist and Black Lives Matter activist here. Uh, there was a, a hate crime in, I think, 2017 when a white supremacist on the train in Portland um, shot a, a black person, killed them on the train. The day before, he tried to do the same to Demetria Hester. She tried to warn the police. They didn't listen to her. Her story became national. Um, so she's kind of became, became a figurehead here. Anyway, so she forms helps form this group. I don't want to say it was her idea, but she helps form this group. The next day, remember this is day one to day two. So in one day, you had hundreds of women, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, all middle-aged elderly, wearing yellow shirts. They brought gas masks and protective gear. I'm talking about eye protection, not like rubber, right. uh, uh, bulletproof, right, no bulletproof vest or anything. Like vest or anything. Yeah. Right. They walked out in front of that courthouse, um, which is a, it's a city block. Uh, if you have ever seen the pictures of the JC, yep. it's like a city block. Um, these women went out there, went in front of the protesters, but about 15, 20 feet away from the building, legally, you know, where they're supposed to be protesting, and they're not banging or anything. They locked arms and they stood there as kind of a human shield. These women, these middle aged and elderly women, forming a human shield to protect their kids. The other people from police brutality and law enforcement brutality. The first day that they were out there, David, you had, and this is this was on video. I had I have video of all this. You had one firework by somebody in the far side, like I'm talking a block and a half away, that was shot. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't be none. I think I'm not I'm not for that, but I'm not going to tell people to protest, right? right. Like I'm not there and shoot fireworks. But that the, the beyond beside the point here. That one firework, this is what law enforcement has done up here. And these were federal troops, DHS, Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol. At this point, uh, Portland police had stepped back. Those law enforcement that day shot, tear gassed, pepper balled at the wall of moms. Not at the one guy who's in the corner. They didn't send anybody over to get him. Instead, they just decided to brutalize these women who were linking arms in a human shield. And it was one of the most 
Like I said to open the interview, David, it was one of the most devastating and heartbreaking things that I'd ever seen in my life. But at the same time, it was one of the most inspiring things I'd ever seen in my life. Because you had people of all different backgrounds, ethnicities, um, orientations, they're seeing what was happening on the streets of their city that was not being reported nationally mm -hmm. and decided to put literally put their bodies on the line to protect the people that they loved and they cared about. And the response by law enforcement to that was to brutalize those people. Now that's just the tip of the iceberg, um, but I think that's an illustration of what has gone on up here in Portland. This the unchecked, I keep using the word, but it's, it's true, the unchecked brutality of law enforcement on these people has just been it's been something to behold and obviously not in a good way. And as somebody who is a going on middle-aged white guy now, I can't believe that at 36, <laughs> crazy, right? <laughs> and I'm 45. Right, I crazy. just turned 45. I'm like crazy. Right, dude. dude, we're not, we're not young anymore, are we? No. Not young anymore. But as somebody who grew up completely, uh, and I was a country boy in Eastern Washington to not experience the brutality firsthand. But then when I got older, everybody told me about this. You know, I, I lived in New Orleans, like you said, in, in the inner city of New Orleans for 10 years. And I specifically lived there because I love the diversity, right? So vast majority of my friend group on a daily basis, when we'd sit back and have beers after the show or go out to the bars on Bourbon Street, a lot of the conversation revolved around the experiences that they had at the hands of police. And it opens, completely opened my eyes to the, the lifetime of experiences, terrible experiences and discrimination and brutality at the hands of law enforcement that I had never seen before. And I wanna, and everybody out there who kind of knows me a little bit, I was never a, a uh, F the police, an ACAB person, uh, somebody who thought that, that law enforcement needed to be defunded. I was not on that camp, David, for as progressive and liberal as I was my whole life. I wasn't on that camp, really, until June. And you want to know how the police are changing people up here? In three months, in three months, well, it didn't take that long, three months now, I went from somebody, like I said before, to now, I think the departments up here need to be completely defunded, completely restructured, and a lot of these people need to be fired, and the white supremacy and racism within these departments needs to be rooted out. So they've changed me, and we can get into some of the stuff that's happened to me. They fractured my arm, they grenaded me, they shot me multiple times. It's crazy, David. I mean, I, I know I'm rambling here a little bit. No, but, no. But like I, I, it's... I wish I could convey through the screen and through the microphone here, every fiber of the things that I've seen with my own two eyes um, to everybody out there watching and listening to this. Because I think if, if everybody sat in Portland or Seattle or Louisville or Sacramento or wherever these kind of major epicenters are, if you sat on the streets or maybe, you know, we're, we're, part of the crowd and you had done to you what these people are having done to them and the ways they're being terrorized on a daily basis, I think most people, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of who you voted for in any election, would see 
that that's not a place and a country that they want this to turn into or turn back into. And 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 to point that and another point here that I want to get across, a lot of black people, people of color, are going to listen to that statement and go, "What are you talking about? We've lived that our whole lives." And you know what? Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. And mainly, I'm talking here to white America, because just because we don't see it on a daily basis or we haven't seen that in our lives, does not mean it's not happening. And however you want to describe what's happening across the country right now, the great awakening, whatever it is that is now happening, mainly from white America, because we are the people still in power and with most of the money here, which is part of the problem. It's a very tough process. It is a, it's a dirty, ugly process at times, but this finally needed to happen in this country. A country that has been founded on and run on these principles of racial segregation and white supremacy, frankly, for so long, and they're embedded into our institutions like the police, um, if the country was going to become a better nation that we've always strived to be, this kind of awakening and reckoning needed to happen. I guess when I thought that it would happen in my life, I always did think it would happen. I never pictured it going this way. I never pictured it, David, turning into, and I know this is a a buzzword, but I never pictured it turning into a cold civil war, which is basically what I see up here. You know, sadly, and from my perspective, it's like, this is what I always thought it was gonna do. Um, Yeah, it's- When I was, like you say, I grew up in a very, just very progressive household in that manner. You know, my parents introduced me to James Baldwin and W.B. Du Bois and Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King. And, and I read so much. And ultimately, when I was young, I just read Despair. You know, you, you, you have to have optimism. Um, and that was one of the things that James Baldwin always said is like, you either have optimism or you die. Like that's the only reason we exist is because we believe that something is going to be better tomorrow. Um, but at the same time, it's like it, it, you, I knew, and I felt, and my, and this, you know, I didn't think I was a genius for thinking that was that. Yeah. When a reckoning comes in any of our lives, in any of our lives, it's, it's, it's never pretty. When you, when you have to hit a rock bottom, when you have to come to realizations as an individual. And in my life, I've had those kinds of things. And I, the, the, one of the analogies I use for America all the time is it's like the picture of Dorian Gray. And America made this bargain to hide all its sins in the attic and stay beautiful and, and present, this, present this facade while it was committing all these horrible sins. And then one day I realized I can't live with that. It's tearing it apart. And Dorian Gray has to stab his, that picture to get his soul back and restore that, the, the portrait. And it's just, I think that's where America is. It has to get to that point where if it's not willing to tear itself apart and not necessarily, I'm not talking about a mass violence. And if people think that's, I don't want people to think that. I'm talking about tear itself apart to reveal what's really going on inside and deal with that cancer that's eating us up. Like we gotta stop dealing with the symptoms and deal with the disease and the disease is inside. And, and I think that's the part is like, those images that you show, 
and that other show, if you said, if I put a tag on the bottom of the screen, I said North Korea or Hong Kong or, you know, some Eastern European or, or Sub-Saharan African nation, we'd say, this is unacceptable. We have to send in troops to that place and stop this. Yeah. But here in America, nope. we accept it. It's true. And it, David, to that point, if you right now watch how the other developed countries across the world are covering the protests here in the United States and really just our country right now, um, it's a little eye-opening to see outside of the American bubble and the terms that they're using to describe the authoritarian quasi-fascist, fascist practices that we're seeing used by people in power to quell political dissent and quell um, black people rising up um, for their rights. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's not pretty. I mean, it, it's not pretty. And you've said it here multiple times, but it really is important. I think one of the, the, the great things about social media, there's so many bad things about social media, right? And the companies specifically, right? We could, that's right. A, we could spend <laughs> nine hours talking about that daily, probably about that. But the one great thing about social media is it allows unfettered, uncensored access to real-time events on the ground that never was able to happen before. Um, when you had the, um, uh, the uh, protests in the Middle East, a uh, few, the Arab Spring, uh, four or five years ago, that was fueled by live streams and Facebook, right? Uh, if we did not have the social media, the live streams, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, it's all sorts of different um, platforms now up here, the truth wouldn't be getting out because what law enforcement uh, was telling you and everybody out there what was happening in Portland, Louisville, Sacramento, go back to the same cities again, Kenosha. Um, typically what media had always done is take those press releases from the police and turn those into fact. Yep. Right? One of my biggest pet peeves has always been, you go into a news organization anywhere, the one I used to work for, any of them I used to work for, ones you used to work for, you go into those newsrooms and what are they doing? They're taking press releases from police and then putting that out as fact and news. Um, there has been, I can't even count them anymore. Every day, basically up here, we'll just talk about where I'm covering Seattle and Portland, mm. those two cities daily, David, they are putting out press releases or tweeting stuff that isn't misinformation or, or skewed. We're talking about bald face lies, bald face lies about stuff. For example, up here in Seattle last week, obviously big protests for years up here mm -hmm. and the BLM movement has been going pretty much for three years, not to this level, obviously uh, you have two different organizations. Well, the same organizations, but they hold two different marches. They're called the, the everyday marches here in Seattle. One of them is the everyday morning March. One of them is the everyday evening March. These two marches are incredibly peaceful, nothing but marching, chanting, talking, megaphones, that's it. There's no property destruction. There's no fires. There's no physical. Um, there's nothing uh, with these ever, period. These are as peaceful as it comes. They are separate from um, what the, the protesters up here call the direct action. So if you hear the term direct action, that's when those groups are setting a, a dumpster fire in the street um, 
and trying to raise awareness like that. I is covering this. I try to stay completely away from saying it's good or bad, right? I'm just telling you what's happening. They would set that. They try to kind of bait the police out and, and try to raise awareness to what they feel like the march, the morning and evening march doesn't do with their peaceful tactics. But let's talk about the peaceful marches here, the morning and evening mm-hmm. march. So completely peaceful the whole time. Um, really cool idea, especially the evening march. They have, um, they're marching to uh, city officials' houses. They're not threatening or anything like that. They go to the house of the city council members, the mayor, stuff like that. And then they, they get to the house. They usually try to get those people to come out and have a conversation right. with them. That's it. If it doesn't happen, they'll kind of chant there for maybe 20 minutes and they'll go home and that's the, the end of the march, right? That's, that's all that happens. If if uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin in Seattle, she didn't want to come out when they came out, they chant, uh, they say stuff, and then they leave. I mean, that's what happens, right? So some of the conversations they've had at the evening march have been incredible that I've seen. Like multiple city council members, usually I think about 75% of the time, they'll actually come out, sit on the curb, and have an incredible conversation with these people that is so eye-opening and the kind of conversations that every community should be having with their elected leaders. I mean, it's really, really good stuff um, by on-the-ground organizers, Black Lives Matter organizers, basically. That group, the Evening March, um, led by two women, TK and uh, Tati, very peaceful, like I said. Um, one of their marches last week was to go to the police, uh, the head of the police unit, SPOG, uh, Seattle Police Officers Guild, police unions here. Um, a guy named Mike Solon is their president. Complete agitator, complete loon, basically, but they wanted to have a conversation with him. So they marched to his house. They stood outside in the streets. They weren't doing anything. They were chanting. Said, come on out, Mike. We want to talk to you. They kind of knew Mike Solon of everybody was not going to come out and talk to them. So then they were going to, uh, they were going to get out of there. They were going to leave. Right. Um, well, after that happened, um, Mike Solon had the police force chase down those protesters about five to 15 minutes later, chase them down, beat them in the streets. TK's face was bloodied and she was arrested. Tati was thrown on the ground, put in a chokehold and arrested. They used tear gas, they used rubber bullets, again, on a group that is as peaceful as it gets. Do they shout? Do they get animated? Sure. Have they ever done anything violent? Not once that I've seen myself, not once that I've seen documented at all. And here's what I'm talking about with fake news. So that happens. And we all know about the protests. It's going to be really big news here. It is really big news here locally when you have these people arrested um, by the basically after going to the police union guild's head. So uh, social media now gets to work with the misinformation. You had people like Andy No, Ann Coulter, right wing trolls that take video, take mm-hmm. video of them outside uh, Mike Solon's house doing nothing. And then they put like the, the label on that, that Antifa terrorists try to burn down and kill Seattle police unions, um, uh, Seattle police president, uh, police union president, Mike Solon. Not only, that, not, misinformation is the wrong word. That's, that's a, lie, a lie, that's lie, propaganda. Yeah. What happens then is you have the right wing hate sphere go into overdrive and start calling for these people to be murdered, killed, raped, brutalized. And I'm talking about direct calls, not from anonymous accounts, David. I'm talking about from verified Twitter accounts that are now in on this. And 
they tried to bring that to the the FBI and certainly not the local police because that wasn't going to help or anything. Tried to bring it to city council members. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. So the the disparity up here between pe- people peacefully protesting for their rights, the vast majority, I'm going to say like 98% of people out there have done nothing but peacefully protest. And then to see the law enforcement's response on a daily basis to just terrorize these people, um, no American, no American, David, should stand for that. And I know that's that's a utopian vision that, that we'll never get to in any country in the world, right? Because we're human. But everybody should be outraged. Everybody should be outraged by the way these protesters are being treated by law enforcement. Um, myself, I was in Portland, David. Uh, when I think this was like sixth or seventh time back to Portland after I had uh, come up here and done this full time. I go to another protest. This is during the evening, right? Mm-hmm. This protest was there were some direct action people um, that were lighting fires in the street on one side, right? So as press, me and uh, uh, I don't know, there's so many people there, but there's, there's a bunch of us probably actual working press. I'm not talking about people with cameras that say they're press, but right. there's probably 10 or so from local outlets. And there's ACLU legal observers in their blue vests that are just watching to make sure uh, both sides and document everything that's happening and atrocities are happening. So I go and plant myself in the middle of the ACLU legal observers. There's two of them there, right? Two, they're probably like five, two women, right? Like the small women, I'm six, seven, I'm standing in the middle of them. And I think two or three other press members come and stand next to me. We're kind of flanked on our left side by um, a huge construction sign that we thought was going to protect us as the protesters. We saw the cops coming out. So right. here come the cops right towards us. David, the first thing that happens, and this shows you the unrestrained terrorism that especially Portland police has shown and Seattle police too, but this is Portland police. The first munition that they shot was a grenade that they shot right at me and the ACLU legal observers. I'm not talking about in our vicinity, David. I'm talking about right at me. I had my phone up in my left hand. This was on August 8th. The grenade hits me right here, explodes on my arm, fractures my arm, does nerve damage. I get knocked out. Thank God it was me and I'm okay. If that would have hit one of those ladies in the head or me in the head, we're dead or blinded. We're dead or blinded. And that is just one small fraction of the terrorism brutality that people have seen here, especially working press, especially working press who by our constitution, the very bedrock of this society, regardless of whether you think that document was flawed or how flawed it was, I think it was flawed, I think everybody can agree with that, right? That one of the bedrock principles is that first amendment and the rights to free press to cover events like this and to have now state sanctions Violence, um, agencies try to infringe on those rights and then be unrepentant when they do that and kind of celebrate when they do that is one of the most terrifying aspects um, of all of this, uh, of all of this, David, it really is. No, just, it was, it was frightening to me to just watch the LA County Sheriff and just say, basically, Hey, they got themselves into that situation. You know, they're talking about a reporter who had been beaten yes. and just like, oh, well, uh, she shouldn't be so close. Or um, if you had said CNN, you'd be okay because we know what CNN is, but we're in the moment. We can't listen to it. But like, 
Well, she got a lanyard on. She has the jacket on. She's got all. She's holding a camera. How do you not know that's media? Well, we don't have time for all that. No, Dave. Let me let me stop right there because this is really so. This happened this last weekend, right? So this is really important to know. So this is the kind of misinformation and nonsense that we see from police. So that lady, she works for NPR, the local yes. NPR station there. Very well known reporter has been out to all of these. Um, and it's not like the cops haven't seen her there. And again, she was marked. She had her lanyard. Um, she was not only arrested, she was arrested brutally. Like yes. there's video of this that she had on there. Well, the police know or the sheriff's department knows that video is going to get out and they're in trouble, right? They're in big time trouble. They had a terrible thing happen to one of the officers in 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 L.A. Yeah. Nobody. It's unconscionable. They had a person walked up to a cop car and unloaded trying to kill a kill kill a police officer in cold blooded murder attempt. That person, if they find him, and if the story looks like it's true, and there's video of this, that person should be locked up and go away. That's violence on violence. Nobody should do that. Period. End of story. It's disgusting. It doesn't help anything. Right. However, separate from that, here's what happened. You have that night. The police, the sheriff's department, the police department tweet out that Black Lives Matter protesters are blocking the hospital and chanting death to the officer and hope she dies and doesn't recover. David, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. And it was a story that got spread across the country. The video, the only video that anybody seen of this was one guy in front of that hospital looked like he may have been uh, unhomed and experiencing some mental problems, that kind of thing was chanting that in the streets. There was no black lives matter protesters there. Right. there was no protesters anywhere across, uh, you know, that hospital trying to block anything. And the sheriff's department, like they have, I said five minutes ago, daily, they are engaged in lies and propaganda to, I, I, I guess, just to try to fool the public because they think they can but they were not they were telling they weren't telling the truth there right and instead they tried to bury and i'm sure they did this on purpose they tried to bury the story of their officers brutalizing that reporter for npr like i don't understand this from law enforcement if law for the sheriff's department put up the video which they did of that mm -hmm. officer being shot and the person walking up to their car that is appalling to every decent human being in the world. But the, the Sheriff's Department and the law enforcement agency, they do themselves no favor, David, when they engage in these lies on social media, which are easily, easily disproven. Yep. I, I just think they're living like in 1970 or 80s when there's not video everywhere and they control the narrative through media. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this like revulsion from them because they don't, they don't control that narrative anymore. And they probably are flailing and don't know what to do. They've never been challenged. And, and now they're being challenged in a way that they just don't understand and can't comprehend. And it's, I, I just, they're going to have to adjust more than we will. I want to, I want to bring this back and tie it into the sports world um, because we've seen this, we've already seen this in my mind, commodification of the movement by these sports leagues. Um, the NFL in particular, I found it appalling what happened on Thursday of last week um, before the game, and then the yes, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk. Then we'll talk about this weekend where they said, "Oh, we're going to put Black Lives Matter, and we're all in this together in the end zone, and it's microscopic in the back. There's no real, um, you know, uh, 
Rod Walker from The Advocate, I had him on the uh, show yesterday, and he was talking about how, you know, they, they were going to play Lift Every Voice and Sing, and they do the Alicia. He said it was 30 minutes before anybody was on the field when they played it. So it's like just checking off a box, which was something that Black America never asked for anyway. It, it doesn't address these issues. But everything they did, from the Mike Tirico interview with Roger Goodell, where they basically, again, never directly addressed Colin Kaepernick, you see all these things where now it's become easy to allow kneeling. It's easy to put on a t-shirt. It's easy for leagues to say they believe in these things, but are they actually going to go to the places of power where they sit and try to affect that change? I don't believe it. How do we hold them accountable for these things? Well, you, you hold the people accountable and I don't think you're going to be able to hold Roger Goodell accountable, right? Like that's a suit. That's a corporate suit who is not beholden to us. No, the media, not beholden to the fans, not beholden to black people or Black Lives Matter movement. He's beholden to the owners. And those owners aren't really beholden to anything but the money that they make. Um, So there is change that can be made, but it's got to come on a large scale, kind of like the movement has been in the NFL um, after Colin Kaepernick. knelt and the fallout from that inside the league and then after they bungled the response to that to the response from black america uh, to that that's forced the nfl's uh hands here really quickly i'll get to that in a second but the kansas city episode david perfectly encapsulates exactly what so many people have been saying about the anti-black lives matter crowd and movement is that it was never about the type of protest. It was never about kneeling. It was never about the way that they're protesting because that, they didn't kneel, wasn't during the anthem. They locked arms before the games and you had a crowd for the defending world champions boo them in a moment of unity. And one of the most absurd things that I've ever seen um, in sports, period. The lowest, most basic way to do something and be positive. Like yeah. the most milk toast, non-offensive thing you could do. Yeah. And because of what it's attached to. Yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. And just go back and, you know, I was, I was hot and heavy. I think I was like year one of, uh, of double coverage at that point, um, going into the last lap when Colin Kaepernick's protests started. And I remember viscerally so many conversations with not only people I work with, but audience members uh, on the air, columns that were written about um, how I felt at that point that not only was that a peaceful protest, period, it was, but that everybody who was raising a ruckus, that they didn't like this and it was anti-troops or anti-America or anti-flag, were all full of nonsense because they all said, oh, you need to go protest a different way. And at that point, I remember you probably had these conversations too. I asked these people, okay, this, this is a peaceful protest. You don't want them to protest this way. What way do you want them to protest? And they said, oh, peacefully, just not during the flag. Well, you have people marching in the streets now, peacefully, separate from any of you know the 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 very few instances of you know fire being lit or whatever. But when you see people now marching in the streets, exercising their First Amendment rights, um, the same people are saying, "Oh, sit down and shut up." Um, you know, that's that's not the kind of protest that we want. Okay, you don't want you don't want people kneeling, you don't want them marching in the streets. Um, 
how about going to city hall? Oh, they don't go to city hall meetings. That's not right. How about, you know, it's just, there's no, at some point, And I think maybe that, that people have to wake up to this. You're not going to change the minds that don't want to be changed here. There's not going to change. Do you think that you're going to change all those people at, at Arrowhead stadium? Do you think that those minds are going to be changed now? If no. they're booing a moment of unity, you know what I don't mean? worry about them. Never about, it's never about, you know, this David, it's never about the type of protests. It's always been about what they're protesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it challenges the very core of who they think they are and they, what they think America is. And if you have to accept the fact that in its heart, America was founded on racism, if you have to accept the fact that you've tried to declare not one but two sets of people by, based on their ethnicity, first the natives and then us, and you just tried to turn them into permanent underclasses, through law and through extermination and through intimidation, you can't ever get past it. You'll never get past it. You'll never fix it because you can't arrest your way out of it. You can't hide it. You can't keep moving to different places because we're still there. And I think that I said this to an, an audience one time of, uh, in Houston on a radio and I was saying that in a lot of ways, we're the bastard children that the America does not want to acknowledge. That black people are the reminders of the very worst things that America has ever done. And when America sees us, that reminder is, is too hard to look at and deal with. And I think that that's, that's what fuels a lot of that anger is just, I can't, I can't deal with that pain and that hurt. And I get it, but at this point, it's not my problem. You know what I mean? Like I've had to live with it for too long and I'm not, I don't want my daughter to live with it. And I don't want, you know, her children to live with it because my dad didn't want me to live with it. And so uh, going all the way back and I know what, you know, it's, it's really not that far from me knowing having relatives that I spoke to whose parents were slaves. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's not that long ago and people think it was this long, long time ago. No, I spoke to my great grandmother whose mother was a slave. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm, so if I'm old enough to have spoken to someone who knew a slave. Yeah, well, you probably, and, and just people think, like you said, if people think it's the distant past, it's not. And desegregation, um, you're 45. You have relatives that went through that, lived through that, right? In the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the 50s and 60s, pardon me. Um, it's not our distant past. This is this is current. This is you know, this is a reckoning and awakening that needed to happen in America, and it's it's really ugly. But it's I will say it's it's a little disheartening to see the response by so many um, out there. Um, it is it really it really is. It's it's it disheartening, is. and I think we're in we're in a we're in a tricky tricky spot um, to use a little bit of a euphemism right now because I don't know. I don't know what the, how these movements are going to evolve. I, they're not going to go away. You know what I mean? Like the, the people, I, I'll just talk, the people in Portland and Seattle guarantee you that they're not going to stop um, just because they keep getting brutalized or people keep calling them racist names, right? That's not going to stop them from being out in the streets. And um, um, we, we now see the violence, you know what I mean? So, uh, but Sports is a big part. Sports is a big part. Sports is a big part of our culture. Um, one of the great moments, you know, you remember um, uh, was Jesse Owens and um, Jim Thorpe, uh, the people of the Olympics in the 70s, um, so many different moments that um, kind of revolve around the civil rights movements. Um, and it's, of our 
podcast and it's going to be that's, important here also. Yeah, it's, that's why I always, you know, laugh when people say, you know, keep politics out of my sports. But it's been political from the very beginning in this country. Muhammad Ali, people. Come on. I mean, I mean go back to the very beginning. Like I said, the moment that leagues say black people can't play or Indians can't play, you've made it political. Yeah. At that very instance, it is now political going forward forever. And it's just, it's always been that way for good and for bad. You know, people like to, to, to talk about the healing qualities of sports, but sports can be just as divisive racially. The, the, I, I, when I watched College Game Day the last couple of weeks and you have Ed Orgeron say, racism got to go. And then you have uh, Nick Saban say, all lives matter, including black lives. And I'm just like, you don't get it. And well, that's... That, I, by the way, that Nick Saban, did the, do you remember the picture of him leading the march? It was awful. It was that, the, the visual and look, I didn't say anything because I'm a white guy, so I'm not going to comment on that, right? That there's enough, but that to me, just the visual of Nick Saban, obviously in control, and be like, I'm leading you, and all of you young black men are going to follow me. That wasn't a good look. Just no. the visual of that was not. They a good should look. have been leading him, yeah. and that services the black players should be in the front. Yeah. And the white players are in unity. And people will say, well, why are you pushing them to the back? And it's because in any movement, instead of you're as an openly gay man, mm-hmm. I would never presume to stand in front of that, <laughs> you know, and say, a pride well, I, I know right, right. yeah, I know what's best. I, I got this. I figured it out. I've read all the literature. So I yeah. know. Same as, I same as I wouldn't do with women. I'm going to defer. My job in that sense as an ally is to say, what do you need? from me how can i help you that's what an ally is doing it's support it's not leadership in that case and i think that also bristles a lot of people even people who would characterize themselves as liberals in getting in and having their feelings hurt and being told (laughs) this is not about you today it's about us yeah you've got to be willing to have your feelings hurt and realize that you don't know everything uh you've made mistakes or are making mistakes and are blind to some of your own ignorances we're all we all as humans every one of us white black indigenous um whatever you have your own prejudices and inner bigotry that you have to work through and that is you're right david like one of the one of the things that i always just a complete eye roll is when white person gets called out for their nonsense not in a bad way they just get called out and then they they go into i'm the victim now mode it's like come on man like nobody needs to see that nobody by the way go back to nick saban i don't he he, i'm not saying he's a bad person i'm not saying that he is you know some kind of white supremacist or anything like this he's a powerful one of probably the most powerful guy in alabama white guy right he has zero perspective about what that visual look like or what actually standing with not in front of with uh all of his black players is that's my view of it as a white guy but uh, you you have just yeah, way that's, more that shows <laughs> again and we'll talk and we, as we transition to this part but that it shows when you don't have people in the room yeah when you don't have black media people in your office when you don't have black people in the athletic department when you don't have people who feel empowered to tell you coach you might want to do this a different way. When LSU put out that social media thing and it put racism gotta go, G-E-A-U-X, if there had been a black person in that room, I'm pretty sure they would have told them, maybe let's change the tone or not post this at all because it's not the tone we want to convey here. This is not a pep rally. 
this is serious. It's and- serious. And, and, and I just want to, and I know we're going to talk about other stuff, but to everybody, to you, everybody watching out there, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of whether you completely agree with what I'm saying, or you're kind of eye rolling going, wow, he's making a big deal out of nothing. The only thing that I would ask everybody to do is watch actually what's happening on the ground. Don't go through CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or your local TV stations because they're owned by big conglomerates now. Just watch what's actually happening on the ground from the live streamers, from the local journalist up here. There's a guy named Sergio Olmos, O-L-M-O-S, who I think is going to win a Pulitzer Prize. He works for OPB, the public broadcasting um, situation here. I'll give a shout out to him. He's going to win a Pulitzer. He's done that well. So um, just watch what's happening on the ground and form your own opinions there. And I do think, and I think maybe this is a good segue, David, because I think one of the great problems right now is the way that corporate media is controlling the narrative. Yes. And, and part of that is that they've limited the voices. He said choice only exists if you have true options. And we know both in radio and in television, most of the stations are controlled by a very small group, whether it's Sinclair or Citadel or Intercom, or they're, they're a small group of companies that control, even in the same markets, competing stations, there is a small group of people in charge, and it does not reflect the population at large. 90, 85 to 90% of on-air voices across the country are white. Mm-hmm. In management, it's even higher, that percentage of, of leadership. Um, so in a city like New Orleans, where you spend so much time, that is supposed to be one of the most diverse cities in this entire country. And yet, and this is, again, not to toot my horn, but to wait till 2019 to have an African-American soloing or in any way doing a daily show um, in sports in that market, which is as, as passionate an African-American fan base for its teams as any other place in the country for high school sports, pro sports, and as a majority black city, same in Baton Rouge, all white male lineups on sports talk radio. That lack of diversity means you're not getting complete pictures of these stories for you to make an informed decision as a listener, as a fan, all of those things. You are being fed just one perspective, and it's just it, it's it's to the detriment of all of us. Uh, it is, and just to hey, this is a fascinating topic, um, and I'm really glad, by the way, Larry Holder uh, started writing about this a little bit. Um, somebody, I mean, we need more voices, I think, amplifying the message, David. is mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, like, label Larry Holder like some kind of hero or mm-hmm. anything like that. You know what I mean? I just think that he did a great job of telling a story that you're talking about that needed to be told. Um, what is this? Like 67% of the population in New Orleans proper, I think the last time I checked, is, is black, African-American, right? Like you said, right now, on sports radio, right now in New Orleans, there is not one black Sports radio host in a city, and I've lived now countless places across this country in this gig. I have never seen the passion for sports across the board. Yes, the Saints and LSU, but just sports in general um, from anywhere other than that city. I mean, that, that's that's the, the creme de la creme of sports fandom, I think, is New Orleans. And New Orleans embraces that, right? Like, yeah. everybody who's been in New Orleans realize, like, we're pretty damn good at sports man we're pretty damn good at sports we're damn good at sports fandom but that you have these powerful organizations inside the city um that have deferred to the middle-aged to elderly white voice for everything 
Um, it's depressing, man. It's really depressing. And there, and I want to make it clear here, because it's a very sensitive topic that I am not talking about any one person in particular, especially the people who are on air. There's some really damn good on air talent in New Orleans and in Louisiana. There just is um, of all races. Right. But when you have a failure in the city of New Orleans from a leadership perspective and a corporation, a corporate perspective, to actually diversify the voices that are heard on air, um, that's hurting their bottom line. Absolutely. Um, um, it, it, it just is. Um, I, I've told this story before, but I, I won't name any names here, but this is, this is true. This is, this is how bizarre it's gotten, uh, in my view, in, uh, in New Orleans. There was a young black journalist um, who covered um, the Pelicans who was looking for a gig, right? incredible sports writer, incredible guy. And he was really good on air. I'm talking about like this guy, if he wanted to not write and wanted to go into radio, he easily could have done it. He's that good. He's that kind of effervescent and uh, charismatic on the air. I begged and pleaded with our management to give this person a look and get him on the air. We had openings, by the way, not only did it not happen, I was laughed. I was literally laughed out of the office. Guess what happened with that guy? A couple of months later, he's hired by ESPN. A couple of months later, the guy's hired by ESPN. Not good enough, David. Not good enough for a small local radio show or station here in New Orleans that has a burgeoning Pel you wearing the hat, burgeoning Pelicans fan base, especially with Zion. Like this team is going to encapsulate the city for the next decade or so. I just firmly believe it. It's already kind of happening. But you have one of the great, forget youth, one of the really great sports writers covering basketball in the state of Louisiana who is here, who is ready, who wanted the job, who you could have given him the job. And instead, not only do you not hire him, he goes and works for ESPN, but then what do you do? You hire a white guy instead, or you're trying to hire white guys instead. Um, it's just, it's inexplicable, David. I have, I've run out of ways to try to think about this. Like I, mm -hmm. at first I thought it was, I guess I don't know what I thought. At first I thought it was fixable. Like it was something that could be fixed. It was something that if you had enough people inside the organization stand up and say, hey, um, this needs to change. We need to diversify a little bit that it would kind of work itself out. Um, and it's not the one, st and by the way, it's not just the one station that I used to work for. No, it's nationwide. It's not, is, it's not just, it, it is not them at all in this specific instance. Okay. So I'm not singling them out. I just wanted to tell that story because that story I'm sure happens at every station, not only in the South in new Orleans across the country right now. And it's just, it's just unacceptable, man. It's just unacceptable um, in a city that is 67% African-American or so that you have a big old zero, a big old zero uh, black people in sports radio. I just don't get it. And David, you know this, there's always the conversation in New Orleans about, well, man, why, why are this, why are our ratings going down? Why is uh, by Matt Moscona and T-Bob and everybody, they do it incredible job everybody on t-bob is one of my best friends so i'm a little jaded here, right? but everybody, everybody everybody's wondering like well why why is that station coming in and why do they why are they so big and and radio in new orleans nobody here listens to, to sports radio maybe because they've found some people over in baton rouge that really reflect their market and do a good job of it and the stations in new orleans aren't finding people that reflect their market 
man. Baton <laughs> could diversify a little bit too. No, I get it. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's because it's, look, I live in Baton Rouge now, so. Yeah. For me, look, I have I live less than two miles from that station, mm-hmm. and I tried literally for a year, and and I don't I don't put it on T Bob or anybody else, but I asked people, you know, I said, yeah, I just want to meet, I just want to meet, I don't even I'm not asking for anything guaranteed, yeah. I just want to sit down and have a conversation because at the time I was trying to find my way into the business, mm-hmm. never even got a phone call, never even yeah. got a phone call, and I was building a reputation, you know, I remember. I couldn't talk to you on the radio because of who I was working with. At the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there was a unspoken, you know, cold weird war there. thing, by the way. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. But other than that, I was doing, you know, you, you saw me, I was doing plenty of appearances. I was writing regularly. I had, I had carved out a space. Yeah, you did. And here in my own backyard, I've been on the radio two times in six years. In, in my own backyard, I've been on Lafayette Radio more. I've been on New Orleans Radio more. I've been in other cities. I've been on you know, national stuff. In my own backyard, can't get a call. And, and that stuff, you know, bothers me. It bothered me in New Orleans, you know, to all those times because I knew I wasn't the one. I knew there were people who should have gotten it before me. And I know that there are people right now who could do as, as good a job as I do. And ultimately, too, I think I don't want people to hear us and think that well, we want to take jobs away from white people. That is not it at all. But we suffer because the sports market, the listener, is different. There are more; it's more fractured than ever. There are more things that people want to talk about, whether it's fantasy football or esports or the growth of international sports. People are paying more and more attention to soccer and MMA and boxing, and and they want to talk about gambling. And we're not addressing any of that, New Orleans. It's Saints, LSU, Saints, LSU, Saints, LSU, from the same perspective, seven days a week. And I think that you've you've created a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, people don't want to talk about anything else. Well, I know I wasn't the only one who was talking about other stuff. And I certainly got feedback from people who were happy that I was talking about other stuff. Yeah, no doubt about it. Just going back to great, great points there and going back to Colin Kaepernick. Right. When we when that happened and what was that, 2016, 2016, mm-hmm. 2017, and then uh, his protests first started. Um, guess how many people we had to talk about it. How many black people were on the air in sports in New Orleans talking about this A big zero. So you had the, the cadre of older white guys in New Orleans uh, speaking about that protest and how they viewed it and how what their perspective as white people was about a black person kneeling for racial justice. Um, don't you think it would have been extremely valuable to have a voice like yours, to have a voice like Rod Walker's, whoever it is on the air in that role. So they could relate, especially in new Orleans to a majority of the population and going back to ratings, like forget, forget the politics of this. Just, right. Let's be cynical. Let's be cynical and say, I own a station. I don't care about anything. I want ratings and I want money. That's it. And I'm going to put on the people that I think are going to make me the biggest ratings and the most money. I guarantee you the wisest decision isn't to have no black voices on your station in New Orleans. It doesn't reflect that. You might reach, might be great for the North Shore or other parts of the state, but you're in the city of New Orleans, right? You're in the city of New Orleans. Put some people on who represent your audience. That's all that there. You want to talk about a ratings grower and a revenue grower for stations in that city, stations across the country. 
do it. Like be cynical. That's fine. Capitalism works sometimes. The cynicism of it produces good results, even though you might, might not have the best intentions, right? Like that result, like just be people. cynical, man. There's a whole group of people who want to feel welcome in the, in the sports talk radio realm. And it has always been statistics show it's been heavily a misogynistic place where callers are dominated by people who say, you know, there's, there's a heavy association with racism and sexism with sports talk radio. And that, that was when, why, when I started the show, I was like, it wasn't a quota thing, but I said, I'm going to be active in seeking out as many different types of voices as I can, because it was better for me. I could have done what everybody else was doing and rely on the same experts that people were familiar with, but it was better for me to go try to, you know, speak out um, and, and reach out to voices from around the country, women, men, whomever, who had a different perspective that they could bring to what was going on locally um, and nationally. And I think I grew from it. I think my audience grew from it. And those are the things that help change in subtle ways. We have to have dramatic change in some places, but part of it is getting to normalize the fact that you see people in roles that normally you never see them in. It helps, it helps white folks to see that and it helps black people to see it because then they realize that is an achievable thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it is the perfect point, David. And, um, you know, I'm a proud openly gay man, right? Um, there was nobody when I was growing up and I was listening to Dave Niehaus and Bob Robertson, who just passed away, go Cougs, uh, one of the Hall of Fame broadcasters up here, and, and um, Kevin Calabro and all those guys. When I was growing up wanting to do this gig, right? Kind of knew that realizing that I was gay, I was like, man, there's nobody, nobody like that in the profession that I want to go into. So representation is big. You know, representation um, is really important. Like all these kids, and just keeping it local, all these kids in New Orleans, man, these young black kids, black boys and girls who wanted to get into sports radio don't have anybody locally that they can look up to plenty of people nationally that they can, but not here in their own backyard, which is unfortunate. You know, really and if you're 13 or 14, you may not know. Cause I didn't know uh, when I went into broadcasting, I had no realization of what a path to sports radio looked like. <laughs> right. it, just, it, right. it was not something that was even on my map and going to NABJ conventions and talking with guys like, um, you know, uh, um, the Stewart brothers who had their show, the two lives dudes in, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, they're out of the business and there's nobody Atlanta, another city, predominantly black, not a single black person on seven days a week. You know, it's just great. Not That's in New nice. York city. It's, it's, it, there's one in New York city and I think it's Stephen A. Smith because he's national. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's very, it's very strange. It's a very weird thing. Um, and it, it, like I said, I think it hurts people and like, to the pragmatism of business to me, and it goes across all these things. When you start marginalizing people and saying they can't do these things, you're narrowing your net to grab talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, look, look at those organizations that you just talked about. Um, some of the people who like are program directors or run them locally, um, might be people of color, but the people who own those organizations, the people with the real power, iHeart or Intercom or Citadel, guess what they all are? They're old white guys. Yep. They're old white guys who have been enriched by the system, uh, want the status quo, and don't want it to change. And there's a huge problem with the directives coming from those corporations on the East Coast, giving directives to all their stations in the little markets. Uh, you know, for, for example, on this Colin Kaepernick uh, issue, we'll go back to that. 
I don't know like uh, uh, what your station did. I actually, I don't think you had a show at that point, but uh, I know that, that our organization specifically told us that we were not allowed by day two of this to talk about this on our show. We were given that order from corporate. We were given that order from corporate. When Drew Brees partnered with Focus on the Family and, and a very anti-gay organization that I was very passionate about, guess what? The same thing came down from corporate, not allowed to talk about this. Um, they're a private company. They can do basically what they want. Like they control their own airwaves. There's nothing illegal about that, but it certainly is a little bit unethical. And I, I'm just trying to peel back the onion. This isn't about me. Mm. I'm just trying to peel back this onion a little bit, right? So people understand that. I got the backlash too. You know what and I mean? Yeah, the, it the, was, the, it the was real. It was very real because even the Saints organization was very unhappy with me because then at the time I was still working for another entity mm -hmm. as well. And they communicated very clearly that they didn't like somebody under their employ you know, who had a relationship with the Saints talking negatively about Drew Brees in that manner. And it, it got back to me and I was made aware that it, it needed, that I couldn't write any more of those pieces. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I would say that uh, personally for me, um, I think when my contract would have been expired, that would have been it for me um, here, regardless, because I was tired of being silenced. You know what I mean? Um, and again, this isn't, a legal thing. These are private entities. They have the right to say you, again, they're private. They're not public. They can legally tell you, we don't want you talking about this, whatever. Um, but that doesn't make it right. No, that doesn't make it right, man. There was a story. There was a story. I remember about the, uh, the Honville high school quarterback, uh, who was suspended a, a couple of years ago. I don't want to use their names cause they were under, uh, they're underage at that point. I don't think they are anymore. White kid, white, white quarterback that was suspended, kind of a weird suspension right admittedly like why is this kid being suspended he's going into his senior year this kid mm -hmm. you know maybe he's gonna go to college like this kid just should be allowed to play it was a transfer thing however wasn't me this was a lot of people in the city that i talked to unearthed the same thing happening to black athletes student athletes across the state like exactly the same thing and i, I tried to report on it I won't name names, but there were other people at television stations and radio stations who also wanted to do a bigger investigative story on like the LHSAA and how they've been suspending black athletes, just like that Honville High School quarterback for really weird reasons and unreported on it. We were told no. We were told no. I was told no. I wasn't allowed to do that or talk about it. I know personally, this is double sourced, one television station in the market also, corporate directive said, no, you're not allowed to talk about it. Other radio stations. This is the kind of stuff that's just, it's bizarre, but it's also hurtful. Yeah. It's also hurtful, man. Like if, if I'm the parent of one of those black athletes that was suspended, right? Or I'm that black athlete that wants to go and also play uh, quarterback in college or football in college. And I want my story amplified, just like the kid from Hanville. When you have men and women in suits who aren't allowing that to happen, that is that is a failure, complete failure by media. Yep. And like our most basic duties, you know what I mean? Like if you're gonna do this gig, yeah, you can have fun, especially sports, right? You want it to be, you want to be fun, you wanna have fun, you wanna yuck it up, you wanna watch football, that's what we all wanna do. We wanna have fun on our jobs. But there's also a responsibility that comes in having the platforms that you do. And the, the again, legal censorship, yes, but 
ethically irresponsible censorship like that is a massive problem and it comes from the people in power not the pds not uh, you know the the local manager or anything like that it comes from the corporate side especially in radio and i don't know how you fix that like i just don't know how you fix that unless it's like it's kind of happening across the country it's a rising up by the fans in the audience i kind of hope that um what COVID has taught people in one aspect, and it's taught us a lot of things, both, again, positive and negatively. But I hope one of the things it's, it's taught us is that you see it, you saw all these big companies start cutting back and firing people and letting journalists go. Um, a lot of our colleagues and, and, and let's include, I mean, like, this is, this is a hustle. We, we have to, it's not, this isn't, we're not getting rich over here. Um, <laughs> no. you know, I, people think we do, by the way, people think that we're all just like rich running around. Yeah. Let stuff. me push my diamond shoes aside for a moment and uh, my de- gold doubloons before I go jump into my money. Bin, like Scrooge, <laughs> You're talking, McDuck. Yeah, Scrooge McDuck, right. <laughs> but yeah. it's been, a, there have been so many journalists put out and having to create their own avenues again, while they either try to find a new affiliate or just maintain their voice, there could be, and I hope this is what it, like a re, a relocalization of media. Because as we let this thing happen, where the entire identities of cities—I mean, our, our our radio and our television—were unique to our cities. They spoke to us, and now, like you said, if you watch a Sinclair broadcast, same format no matter what market you're in, same graphic packages, same—you know—it's the same voices. Same stories. Everything is the same. And and it's so I think that there's a there's going to be much more not for mainstream because they're going to do what they do. But I think there'll be more of a demand for re- localization of news sourcing and, and, and just presentation again, because these large companies can't afford it now. They, they, they just want to buy national programming and cookie cutter it across the country. Yeah. Just to speak to how abjectly these organizations have failed, you have this, we go back to the protests in New Orleans, in Portland and Seattle. You have all these live streamers and local journalists and freelancers out here on the streets every day doing the jobs. Guess what those national organizations, the national TV stations and radio stations and uh, you know publications want to do? Steal they're, calling, <laughs> they're, calling, they're calling those local journalists and saying, hey, can we use, by the way, they're not offering money for the most part. They're saying, hey, we want to use for the prestige of being on Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. Uh, we want to use your stuff for free. And I'm thinking, and I've had a lot of conversations with the, you know, kind of the new uh, the journalists down here going, I know you want the exposure on Fox News, but they just didn't spend the thousand, two thousand dollars it would have uh, uh, cost to send somebody to actually cover this and they want you to do their job for free which is outrageous but the bright side of this if i'm if i'm going to get optimistic about something to what you just said the reinvestment in local journalism i think that most people up here now i think if you took a poll it'd be interesting i think if you took a poll now in seattle and portland on who they trust more if you ask local live streamers, local journalists, or corporate media. I think most people would say live streamers. That's where most people are getting their news now. A lot of these people have started their own um, uh, media organizations. Yeah. Uh, Carissa Des down here, uh, CJ Halliburton, um, Seattle Protest Network, uh, Kevin David Williams, uh, Boop Troop Eugene. I mean, I could go on and on. I just named a few of them, but there's, gosh, David, there must be at least like eight organizations just in the last three months that have spawned and are financially viable anyways right now because they're doing great on the ground work. They're doing great journalism. And guess what? The people want it. 
Yes. And people support it. You know what I mean? I think, so I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that appetite is there. And I think the opportunity is there because so many of us are going to marshal our efforts. That that has been a, a positive as well as I have not networked as much with other journalists across disciplines and, and fields of interest more than I have in this year because it has become so urgent to me to stay informed and also to support them, even if it's just by putting their information out there or even if it's just by telling them, hey, it's, oh, keep doing this, keep doing this, it's important. I mean, like, we have to do that for each other because if, if it was just for, if we were just doing it for money, if we were just doing it for praise or whatever, oh, we'd starve to death. So, I mean, I think it's so important and I think it's so, I, I just really appreciate what you are doing. And, and I'm glad that we finally got to have this conversation oh, oh, and just too. get to talk, man. Me too, man. I'll give you a shot. So you want, Hard in the Paint wants like a, a you know, a, a scoop here. You want to get on a guy who I think legitimately could win or should win a Pulitzer Prize. Sergio Olmos, the POC uh, freelancer up here who's now working for OPB. Have him on your show. Uh, he'd be fascinating interview uh, for you. But you're right. That just, it's, um, I haven't been optimistic about a lot of things what I've seen over the last three months, but did that part of this, I really am optimistic and it's really cool to see um, my faith in actual journalism, actual gosh darn journalism, not the TV packaged, you know, hot take debate journalism, that, but actual journalism has been restored a little bit uh, up here, which is nice. It's still important. I think it's one of the most important things of our time right now uh, is trying to reinvest in that pillar of democracy. Absolutely, man, on so many different levels. And like I said, I appreciate you. And I, I hope we get to do this again real soon. And and not just talk about these serious things, but just continue to have a great conversation. Um, because, hey, man, I, I, I enjoyed this. I, I really, really, I really did. <laughs> no, I really did, too. And by the way, I'll just show you this. There's no number on this. But every time I bring out this up here in, uh, <laughs> in Seattle, I kept this because I'm like, you know, I need to rep the Saints up here. Even though I was born and raised like a Seahawks man, I am. But I pull this out all the time, man. And man alive, the the flack that I get from everybody here is uh, kind of incredible. But I just, you know, I feel like I got to take it for the, for the black and gold, man. Did you watch them on Sunday? I did. I did. I did. You think? Uh, they look good. Uh, Seahawks look good. Um, yeah, they I, do. I still, I still want this. I want my dream matchup, man. I want Seahawks Saints in the NFC. I think those are the two best teams in the NFC. I, I, I just really do. I, Green Bay surprised me a little bit, but I have to take them with a grain of salt because of the opponent, Minnesota. It's Kirk Cousins. How about Arizona? That was a shock. Uh, but it's still Jimmy Garoppolo at San Francisco, so I figured they would take a step back. Yeah. I didn't think that they were as good as they were last year. He played – better than he really is. Um, but I, the one thing about the Saints is that defense is now better than the offense, which is scary to think about. It is, and the steal of the year in DeMario Davis, right? By the way, one of the all-time, all-time great guys and athletes there. Super important, the work that he's doing. So I'm glad that he got – that he got paid, man. So did AK, all right? Yes. Um, you know, Mickey Loomis, whatever he's doing, I, I guess you probably want to measure tax attorney. I don't know. If, I don't know if you want him, you know, to to be against you. But if he's right. with you and he's working on that money, do you think? I, uh, do you think? I think I probably know the answer to this. Do you think the NFL should have allowed that uh, that move for Jadavian planning? I understand why they didn't. 
because it's a that's a big circumnavigation of the cap. <laughs> Five million dollars. I mean, that's yeah. that's a big way to try to work your way around the cap. Now, and if you, you set that precedent, it's kind of that's a can of worms you don't want to open where teams are just blatantly going around the cap. That's true. Do you think if it was the Patriots, they would have allowed it? Ooh, that is a very good question. <laughs> and then you had like, a oh, very good question. The Patriot way, they found a way to do something. I don't know. Because look, if if you're the if you can be if you can own a football team and get caught up in a um, you know sex trafficking ring and <laughs> not get punished, uh, I don't think they're gonna touch you for much else. No, I don't. I, I think that he's got something on Roger Goodell. But I don't know. You have to like where if it had been a player, and I, I, don't, I don't know what I had to go. But if it had been a player in that same situation, who had yeah. gone to the strip mall no, as a repeated customer, knowing what that was, you think they would have been able to play? Dude, they put Josh Gordon again on a year suspension for smoking weed in a legal state last year, in a state that is legal. <laughs> it's it's so again, the power protects power. Power yeah. protects power. Hey, I um, really enjoyed this, man. Anytime you want to chat, uh, I love to do it. Seriously. Yeah, now I'm like, oh, this is this is going to happen again. Yeah, you. All, that's always the the first conversation. You always wonder, are we gonna have a good rapport? Is the rhythm gonna be cool? Is everything? Yeah, man. And and like now, I'm like, yes, we definitely have to do this again. Seth, tell people please how they can follow you and, and keep up with the work that you're doing. Uh, you can just follow me on Twitter uh, at Seth Dunlap. You can also follow Frontline Access, the the people that I'm kind of doing freelance for. It's just uh, at Frontline Access uh, on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, been in kind of a, a hold mode because of the looking out the window right now. It is smoky, man. Like we're yeah. worst air quality in the world right here. So everything's kind of on hold up here for right now. But yeah, you can follow us on there. And like I said before, I really mean this. Um, I know there's sports show, right? So you can have a lot of different people, a lot of different views, especially politically on this. It's not about that. Just watch the real news. And by news, I mean the people who are on the ground, the live streamers, the local freelancers and the journalists to get uh, the full picture of what's going on and then form your own opinion. Don't have yeah. it formed by the corporate media. So Once it's been packaged, it's it's not it's a yeah. story that's yeah. what it is it is literally a story and i've written them you know we both like you said we've been <laughs> yeah. on the other side of that computer oh, yeah. and when these things come down and you just okay that's it it's fact we've said yeah. it. it's fact yeah so yeah exactly. absolutely <laughs> uh, but yeah we'll do this again and um I, I i look forward to the next time so for seth dunlap i am david grubb make sure you follow me at dm grubb on twitter and instagram and check out the website hitpwithdg.com until the next time y'all be cool